Hello. Uh, so I'm Dan Chapa. I'm, this is normally Conversations in Calvinism with uh, Turton Fan, who's a Calvinist, but we've co-opted the channel and, and taken over completely. And it's uh, the um, Armenian channel at this point. So Get that Calvinist uh, out of there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a follow-up discussion. So on um, uh, Dr. Tim Stratton's uh, program, Free Thinking Ministries, there was a, a very interesting discussion that happened earlier this afternoon, and it was on Arminianism and provisionism, and uh, Leighton Flowers and Dustin, I forgot Dustin's last name, but they, they presented the more on the uh, provisionist side, certainly Leighton Flowers um, being one of the leaders on the provisionist side, and um, the points of contention that I saw in the discussion were one on total depravity and then the second on um, the necessity of provenient grace and what exactly provenient grace is. And the discussion happened there. So um, we just uh, quickly threw something together where we come back and chat from our Armenian side, how we saw the discussion and maybe talk a little further about um, some of the points that um, Dr. Flowers made in his opening presentation. So um, I guess I'll say that as by way of introduction. So um, if you guys could introduce yourselves, um, um, actually, uh, uh, Dr. Abbasiano or Brian, if you could uh, go first and then we can go around and uh, just give us a little bit about your background and um, and we can go from there. Sure. Uh, again, I'm, I mean, this was in the video too from earlier this today, but I'm Brian Abbasiano. I am a pastor at Beef Community Church in Hampton, New Hampshire. Uh, by the way, my church is is neither specifically committed to Arminianism or Calvinism. We have I'm a pastor that's Arminian. We have a pastor that's a Calvinist. We pastor together. Um, we don't require people in the church to be either or. You're free to be either or. Um, and let's see. I'm also uh, I have a PhD in New Testament. I I teach as an adjunct at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm probably the lead founder and also the president of the Society of Evangelical Armenians. And uh, I noticed I didn't. Uh, I I am married, have four children, um, and my family's awesome. So yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Um, Andrew, uh, could you uh, sure. uh, please introduce yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm another member of the Society of Evangelical Armenians. Um, contribute to the websites. I also run a few blogs, and uh, yeah, I've been involved in in church planting and uh, and some teaching ministries. And I was a former Calvinist before uh, leaving and and joining up with the society. So yeah, cool. Well, welcome, and uh, Luke, uh, yourself. Uh, so my name is Luke Gowdy. Um, I'm also a former Calvinist. Uh, as I've said before on video, that I wasn't like. The typical five-point Calvinist. I was a. I didn't believe in um, um, t a limited atonement. I didn't believe in. Um, I, I thought I believed in a in a effective calling, but I did not believe uh, the typical Calvinist sort of things about that. And and um, I do come from a Southern Baptist background, but we moved to away from where we could even find a Southern Baptist church. But my dad was employed by a church and uh, there's a non-denominational church, which I still attend. Um, while I was 
there they I could take seminary classes because Trinity Evangelical Divinity School taught classes in our church, and I had D.A. Carson, D Douglas Moo, uh, um, uh, just anyone from Trinity. Uh, Pinnock was there even still at that at the early years, and uh, um, Grand Osborne. Uh, so I, I got a, a wide variety. Pinnock hadn't really gone open theist at that point, I don't think. I think I first saw him in 1977, even before they started teaching at my church. But I, I'm not the type of person that holds on to anything too tightly. And um, even just in discussions, even now, I'll just, I construct a model and, 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 and then just try to see if that model works, you know, however, whatever I'm being presented with. And in classes, I just kind of started thinking, you know, the presentation of the Arminian view isn't quite right. And eventually I, I'm gonna make a long story short, but I just kind of moved on from there. Um, I have a wife uh, who I, our first date was when we were 13 years old and we didn't break up. We got married as soon as we could. And uh, we, we've had two kids. Uh, my son's getting married in two weeks. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, I have a daughter that's uh, um, lives in Minnesota, so. All right. Um, so we have a comment in from Idle Killer. So just saying hi. And oh, wow. Hang on a second. Um, okay. So there is going to be a Calvinist here. So uh, hello, <laughs> Turton fan. It is your channel. So um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, you're welcome to introduce yourself, but I think everyone that's here probably uh, knows you well. So um, maybe if you guys are okay with it, we can I can pull in um, uh, Leighton Flowers' presentation and we can start listening and then just pause it and uh, stop the chat. And Idle Killer or anyone else out there in the audience, if you want to shoot in questions, uh, feel free. We can um, as we as as we're able, we'll uh, we can address audience questions as well. Do we know are there people out there watching? Um, there's some live. Um, not so many. I guess it's because it's because uh, of the time. But but yeah, there are some some folks listening listening live, and they can shoot in live comments. Yes. All right. Um, okay. So um, apologizes if this view is con uh, confusing. So the ones on, um, I guess the my the left side of your screen uh, are the live participants. The ones just to the right. Uh, so you have uh, Tim, Brian, so you have like a Russian nesting doll of Brian Abbasiano and then <laughs> and Andrew and um, uh, and then and uh, anyway, so th they're not live. So this is just uh, playing the, re uh, the previous video. So let's go ahead and listen to um, Dr. Flowers is uh, first bit here and just raise your hand or holler if you uh, want me to stop. Uh, otherwise, I'll just try to find a good place to uh, stop. All right. uh, oh, uh, hi, David. It's good to good to see you. All right. Over this as well. But this at least like you already mentioned, there's different Armenian positions. The Wesleyan view is a little different than than what I think Dr. Abishana holds to. Um, uh, Dr. Olson holds to more classical view that Arminius held to about a partial regeneration. Uh, Dr. Abishano does not hold to that. 
And so that, that can get kind of confusing because when you say Arminianism, you're not necessarily <clears throat> talking monolithically, just like when you talk about Calvinism, you're not talking about one monolithic group, differing, uh, different Calvinists, just like different Arminians have differing views on these different subjects, which is why these discussions can get kind of uh, tedious at times. But the Armenian position, at least the one that I'm engaging with today, I think this is pretty fair representation. And Brian, tell me if it's not. But it's basically saying mankind, once fallen, this is after the fall, in other words, they, they are innately incapable of believing the gospel, which I've labeled their total inability, TI for short. Okay, And so when you just add the gospel to fallen man, you're always going to get rejection. They're, they're going to they're gonna always not believe the gospel because of that inability from birth because of the nature they were born with. Therefore, PG is necessary. In other words, PG is just as short for provenient grace from this Arminian perspective. And so uh, you've got the fallen man with TI, with total inability, and you add the gospel to them, that's not enough. You also have to add provenient grace, which is the Holy Spirit working alongside the gospel to overcome that innate total inability. And therefore, man is able to believe. So it's not irresistible grace, the Arminian's different than the Calvinist here is that he makes you able to either accept or reject the gospel. He doesn't cause you to necessarily accept the gospel like uh, the Calvinist would on their view of irresistible grace. All right. Let's uh, let's go ahead and pause there and just uh, have a chat. So I guess, um, what do you guys think? Um, is this an accurate description of Ar Arminianism? Is it close enough? Um, so I think a couple key concepts that I see here in this presentation, I see one, this um, innate incapacity to believe the gospel. So um, this sort of from birth aspect, I think is worth uh, fleshing out a little bit. And then um, the other thing, the other term that I find interesting is this total inability versus what what's what you know partial inability like i, I guess that's yeah. that that part um is probably worth addressing so do you guys want to comment on this uh innate incapacity to believe the gospel and total inability um far away yeah just just up front it, it probably would have been nice if if brian or i would have been the one to uh to sort of explain the arminian view instead of having him sort of showing off both sides I agree yeah. I, I it, it seems fine to me i mean I, um the total inability thing it doesn't on the one hand doesn't bother me maybe it's perhaps it's uh unhelpful because it might it could be taken i don't know in a weird way or in a way it's not meant because like in one sense any inability is total like you know what I mean? Like if you're unable, you're unable. And so right. adding total inability to it, unless the idea of the total means like, you know, there's kind of this spectrum where like where people are closer to be able being able to believe than not. And I don't think that's particularly helpful, but I guess I don't mind it. But it, at the same time, it's I don't know, it, it doesn't add anything to say total inability. Right, right. So when you think talk of total depravity, it's talking about okay, your mind and your thought life is depraved, but also your heart, your will yeah. is depraved, and like you know, the flesh. So it's like all these different aspects of you, and no aspect of you has escaped it. Whereas, um, you know, total inability is, yeah, I don't think that adds anything. But the, I think the other term, and I was curious if you guys agree or disagree, but I always found it odd when, um, 
I mean, Dr. Flowers objects to innate incapacity to believe the gospel as if he didn't believe the same thing. I, I mean, I mean, I don't know, you know, like at one, what does he think? At one month old, someone can believe the gospel at two months old. No, they, they can't quite understand it just yet. Now, how God uh, handles that situation, I think he has grace for those um, babies that, that die before they reach a certain age. But how God handles that is, is kind of an exceptional case. But, um, you know, when you, when you talk about it that way, um, I don't know why he would object to the idea of innate incapacity to believe the gospel. That seems, that, that always seems odd. Um, I think the issue that, you know, to pinpoint it more so, it would be, you know, the, by the time you're first able to mentally comprehend the facts of the gospel, you know, are you already, um, you know, kind of um, spiritually disabled because of sin, such that you can't believe the gospel? So I, I'm not sure that that innate capacity to believe the gospel really um, hits the nail on the head. I don't know. What do you guys, what do you guys think? I, um, with the regards to regard to that, I think a lot of the stumbling <clears throat> over the concept, um, I'm not going to say with everyone that all the provisionists, but um, some, some of the stumbling is because they, when they lay down what we believe, they do it from um, what they project the Calvinist view to be. So if I were to talk to somebody on the street, I wouldn't assume they can't believe the gospel. I believe God is communicating with everybody and is making whatever I communicate to them understandable at some yeah. level. Um, I, I believe since the beginning, Adam and Eve, uh, I think John 1, 4 just teaches that um, since the beginning, Jesus was the light for Adam and Eve, for all, for all men, mankind. And that didn't change. So from Adam and Eve till now, that's not the change that we need provenient grace now. Is We always needed provenient grace. He was always the light that we responded yeah. to. And a manifestation of the light is any time period in the Bible from starting from uh, Adam and Eve through Enoch, through Abraham, through those are manifestations of the light, including the gospel. The gospel was different each of those times, but man could understand it and accept it because the light is communicating with us. And in a way, I would prefer the words, the, the term total dependency to total depravity. If I if I could recraft the language we use, I would I would go that direction. Because but what I'm saying is man is not innately able to discern um, um, the soteriological truths uh, with a with a sufficient conviction and, unless God is also communicating to us. And that's that's the difference I see. And I, I won't talk too long because I could go into examples, but They'll no. come up. I know. I think that's a great point. I actually agree with you. I mean, um, so usually it's uh, I hear that described as the you know the kind of the loss of original righteousness. But the, the idea is that in the garden before the fall, it's um, you know Adam 
several things changed for Adam, right? So one, obviously he was created in God's image, but that image was marred because of the fall and it's restored in regeneration as Paul uh, says in both Colossians 3 and, and in Ephesians 4. And then, um, but two, there's a spiritual death that happened and if the physical death was coming also. And then of course there's the, um, you know, the enmity between um, the, See, uh, the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, and the seed of the serpent, which is Satan. So there's so many things that happen, but um, Leighton wants to say it in terms of, well, does that mean he, you know, Adam lost the ability to believe the gospel? Wait a minute. He didn't have the gospel before original sin, obviously, but he also didn't even have the knowledge of, the, the knowledge of good and evil before then. So um, I, I, I agree with you that, um, that from the get-go we needed god and we depended on god completely and um so yeah i i, I, I take your point i think it's very strong uh luke i agree with you could I, could I say one more thing i don't want to talk too much please i i do think that when you look at adam and eve there was no sin they could commit except for one if it, it they're them they and their descendants would live in perpetual sinlessness because sin would not enter the world unless they committed that one sin. They lived in a state where they were in harmony with God. And that is because they had the light that they lived by. And that's the same light that comes to us whenever we're communicated with anything from God. Um, so the gospel message is a manifestation of that. But it's not, it is not compartmentalized from the light himself. Because Jesus isn't present in, in, in communicating with us just like he was with Adam and Eve. Uh, so I was going to just address a comment in the comments, but maybe, does anyone oh, is it the one? Was it the one from Idle Killer? Here, I'll yeah. pull it in real quick. Hang but does anyone want to say anything to what we've just said? Do you agree with that? Does that make sense oh. to everyone? I agree. So I'll, I'll just read uh, uh, Warren Idlecolor's uh, comment here, and then, Brian, if you could uh, address it, it would be great. Yeah. Provenient grace, PG, provenient grace seems to negate the gospel as being the power of God unto salvation, moving to provenient grace as the power, or at least the power to the power, okay. um, so unless one says the gospel is provenient grace. So I often see this, this passage quoted by... Provisionist, and I, I, it's just wild to me because, because what that verse says is that the that the the uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't say the question of prevenient grace is what enables us to believe. Yeah, faith in the gospel brings salvation. So that and so the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not the power of God for faith. To all, so, to all who believe. Yeah, that's, so prevenient grace, the question what, was it, grace is was about... Was it not the power of the gospel to those who didn't believe? You know, that that that's, that's that sentence means something in its entirety. Yeah, it's, it's and, a, if you believe, you'll you'll be saved. That's what it's, it's saying. And there's a clear distinction in, in the topics. We're not talking about the power of God for salvation. We're talking about the power of God for faith. Mm -hmm. the, the contention is we can't believe the gospel unless God helps us. And so prevenient grace is the power of God for faith. 
the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And faith is what brings is what brings when it's combined with the gospel is what brings salvation. For all who believe. That's the question, yes, for all who believe. But Not the for all who is, don't believe. How do you get to faith? Provenient grace is the power that we need to get to faith. Or, you know, obviously it's not the only thing we need. We need the gospel as well. Uh, but, yeah. All right. Let's um, maybe uh, play a little bit more of uh, Leighton here. And then uh, let's, let's, let's keep and going. So that, that's Arminianism kind of in a nutshell, at least the way that I see it. Provisionist, at least generally speaking, some provisionists can disagree with this because provisionism is, in my estimation, a broader tent that can include uh, aspects of Arminianism. So I, I'm fine with somebody calling themselves a provisionist if they affirm Arminian theology. That's uh, I'm, a, I'm not a police officer on that. But provisionism, as I understand it and define it, and the way I, I promote it, is that we deny total inability. Um, we don't believe people are born uh, unable to believe the Holy Spirit wrought truth of the gospel. Um, and so we deny total inability from the get-go. We don't we don't adopt that Augustinian concept um, because we believe Augustine introduced it based upon his beliefs and his own you know influences, not based upon scriptural mandate. Now, obviously, Arminians and Calvinists who believe in total inability aren't doing so because Augustine taught it. They're doing they're doing so because they believe the Bible teaches it, obviously. Okay, let's uh let's pause there. So obviously a lot to go on. So we could get I think and we definitely need to get especially to the denial of total inability and then the Holy Spirit working by means of the gospel. But before we do that, um I don't know if you guys want to touch on this idea of um or um uh, I guess indebtedness to Augustine. Um I I could talk about that all day. <laughs> I, I think uh, I'd, I'd love to hear. It. I mean, yeah. So go ahead. I, I think I'm interrupting you. No, 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 please. Actually, can you tell us a little bit about before Augustine and maybe after Augustine and, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe I need to post all of the quotes of the early church fathers discussing this, but um, from Ambrose to Tertullian to Irenaeus, I mean, you have so many of the early fathers saying, I believe because God inspired me to believe and I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, um, Ambrose says, "If I, the reason I want to be a Christian is because God moved me to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, God moved me to, to it, God thought it good and thought it good to move me to, to, to be a Christian. So in all of these phrases, uh, in all these examples of early church fathers, it's just, there's so much of it. And let's let's avoid Augustine. I mean, if you look at um, Eastern Orthodox, um, there's a confession of uh, diocese. I can't even remember the name of it. But uh, anyhow, it'll say, we all believe because of prevenient grace. Now, they don't believe in total depravity because they'll say, well, there's no total depravity because God is enabling us all to believe. But without, belief, without that, we wouldn't believe. Well, that's what we call total depravity. Um, if Leighton met a guy on the street, he would think no less that that guy is able to believe than the Arminian would believe. We would dis possibly disagree why that person can believe, but the early church fathers would say, well, if they believe it's because God is moving in them. Now, I'm not going to say every single church father, but Origen says, um, even my 
you know, he talks about levels of belief. He says, even my initial belief was uh, came from God. So all of the and all these are early church fathers. That, um, I don't know. I, I can think of ten um, that go exhaustive or give clear descriptions of what we would call prevenient. They didn't have the word for Trinity before Tertullian, but they all describe what we would call prevenient grace. Um, Augustine yeah. added election that's deterministic. And then he had to have a causal regeneration, uh, effective call, effectual call, I should say. And that is a big difference, right? Because we don't believe that. So the early church fathers, Eastern Orthodox, Arminian, provisionists, we all believe we can approach somebody and they can believe. We're just disagreeing about why they can believe. And Augustine, yeah, Augustine said, I mean, I don't believe in inherited guilt. Um, you could believe that and be an Arminian, but you know, there's some things Augustine may have said that some Armenians adopted, but it's not required. And so um, prior to Augustine, Provenient Grace and uh, um, Total Depravity, well, they just didn't believe, and I can give you lots of examples, uh, plenty of them didn't believe that uh, we could believe without God moving us first. And they were talking about um, uh, communicating with our consciousness, our conscience, um, which is different than Leighton, because Leighton really believes we have a robust conscience from birth that's informed of anything we can encounter regarding soteriology. So when Enoch, during the time of Enoch, if we'd heard about Enoch or Abraham or whatever, we could innately, we had this inherent ability to identify those as soteriologically applying to us and we would identify that those are true above all other uh, beliefs. And we would say, oh yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I just don't see, there's, uh, we can go into the, what conscience, what meant in, to the Greeks because they didn't believe this. Um, it's not in, in anything, it's not inherent in the word, it's not the meaning of the word, it's not the way Paul uses it. He does talk about the conscience, but you know, the, the, the Muslim has a conscience when, when he uh, eats pork or uh, doesn't do the washing rituals during the, the high holidays, um, he has a conscience, it affects him. He says, I should do the washing. I should not eat pork or, you know, and so uh, we all have conscience. Conscience is something given us to God, but it's ability to reflect on ourselves according to our values. And that's what the Greek word means. And, and I've shared studies with you guys. I've actually shared something with Leighton on Twitter, just right from the, the um, Bible dictionary, but um, I'm, I'll stop talking and let you guys talk. No, that, that was all great. Just very helpful, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, all right, let's let's drill into this uh, the middle point here. So the Holy, well, actually, no, let's start with the denial of, of total inability or the denial of inability, I guess is a, um, a simpler way to say it. So, um, or basically, let's put it positively, provisionism asserts the ability to believe the gospel. Natural man can just believe the gospel. I think that's a, uh, I think that's a positive expression rather than an, a negative expression. So um, I guess what are some of the reasons why we would say, oh, wait a minute, why, why are you saying man can naturally believe the gospel? And 
Brian, I thought you made an excellent point at the beginning of the program, and I wonder if you could elaborate on it a little bit more, but this idea of, well, it's not just about believing the facts of the gospel, but trusting and relying on the person of Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ, and um, basically handing our future uh, destiny over to him. So it, when it comes to an inability, just to make sure, just to make sure that, you know, we're we're clear. You're not, are you saying like, there's like some type of mental problem? Like, you know, just, you know, we have a mental handicap, so we, we can't understand the facts of the gospel, or is it more of a spiritual problem as to why people can't believe the gospel? Yeah, I think it's a spiritual problem. And that's why when we got into the will versus won't discussion, I think I remember seeing a comment in the, you know, the live chat, that made me want to address it where like when I, you know that huh. when i say like we can't because we won't it's not like the point there is not simply that we won't as in we must we we uh like it's not just it's it's it, it's won't to the degree that you can't like but but the issue the issue is that it's it's our will that is twisted and sinful that that won't do it. And so we don't receive the gospel because we don't want to. Um, and so it's it's and and I think I mentioned during throughout the program at different points, different reasons for that. And I'm sure there are more than I even I said, but you know, for example, scripture indicates that we hate the light in our sinfulness that we uh that we're hostile to god in our sinfulness so these things you know if we think about how human psychology works if somebody is you know dead set against something then they um you know they won't consider it or that sort of thing and so this is the type of issue that we have now it is important to me to say that there is a difference between like choose not to and can't but i, I the point, the reason why we say can't with respect to the fact that we won't in this instance is that every time without the aid of the Holy Spirit in our sinfulness, we will we'll choose against God. And so it's to the point where our sinfulness is, is so heavy upon us that we can't. So I don't know if that clarifies that it, at all. It, it does. So and, Andrew, what do you think? And, you know, are there maybe... Yeah. Some te texts that come to mind when you think of reasons why we would say no, we can't naturally of our own for sure obey the gospel. Yeah, when um yeah when Brian's talking, I'm I'm thinking of sort of that uh, reform distinction between uh, natural ability and and moral ability, um, and and I think we're when you're saying well we we can but won't. Um, that's that's what comes to mind, and I've used the example on on Facebook and on Twitter before of of thinking of somebody who's committed to one political party, and uh, and you can imagine somebody else um, trying to convince them to to vote for their party instead. Um, well, that person has the ability, of course, to vote for any party they want, but um, but the reality is they're they're set in their ways. They're not going to vote for that other party until they're brought and convinced and and moved to that position. Um, so I, I, I think the texts that that I would point to, um, sorry, I've, I've got my my notes here from our from the video, um, so I'm just gonna have to flip to the right spot. 
Or I might not have the right notes here. No, I, I don't. But the ones offhand are, are the ones that I was mentioning in the video, Romans 8, 7, uh, where it says that we're hostile. Uh, the natural man is, is hostile to the gospel. So how do you, how do you believe and, and receive something that you're hostile to? Well, there's, there's got to be an overcoming of that hostility. Um, or in, in 1 Corinthians, where it says the natural man doesn't understand or, or won't even receive the things of the Spirit. Um, and I made that point on, on Twitter one, one time. Uh, where we said, well, aren't those things of the Spirit the very things that he's he's not receiving, he's not understanding? Um, and then in, in 2 uh, Corinthians, of course, where that's the text I kept hitting on, where 2 Corinthians 4 says we're blind to the gospel. Satan's blinded our minds so that we won't uh, understand the gospel. And it's the gospel, the very gospel that he's saying that we can receive, or that's the means that, that it says we're blind to. Yeah. Right. And and um and I, I guess I, I want to clarify too that so it's I, I'm not saying that we can but we won't. I'm just I'm saying we can't because we won't. That the won't it's the idea of like because our will is set on our sinful way and on our selfishness, that is what renders us unable to believe. So that which is different than saying we can but we won't i'm saying we won't and therefore we can't because of our because our won't is a an issue of of the will where we our will is broken and sinful that um because we want to not receive it to such uh to a to such a degree that it it renders us unable exactly Does that make sense because I don't want to yes. get, I, I disagree with the, the way Calvinists use moral ability versus uh, natural ability. And, I agree, yeah. And Dan, you you pointed me one time, this is kind of just like a side note of a great, like sort of succinct um, addressing of that issue from an Arminian point of view. It's a free will Baptist. He's got a great name. Kind of, uh, oh, Piccarelli? Oh. No, no, it's a, it's an right. old timer. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, he wrote a treatise on free will. I, I could. Uh, I, I'll have to dig it up. I remember yeah. that. It's been a while, but it's, it's great memory. But right. and anyways, that's just a side yeah. thing to say. So I, this isn't. To, I'm not. I'm not articulating the Calvinist view of natural ability versus moral ability, but I am yeah. saying more. In my view. If you're morally unable, then you're naturally unable. <laughs> um, exactly. Not physically yeah, unable necessarily, but 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 it's still you can't you are unable. So. Right. Okay, so now let's dive into the second bit. So the Holy Spirit working by means of the gospel. So, um, for pardon, me, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into this a little bit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture two thousand years ago and and further back. Right. So what is he doing today? That is the question for for provisionists. Right now, they can say, oh, well, it's his word. And so it's as if he's speaking. So if, you know, somebody finds this episode 2000 years from now, they can hear us. And, you know, so in some sense, we're, we'd be there talking. And, it's, and in some sense, the Holy Spirit is. Now, if if that's all they mean, it's just the recorded word of God is in scripture, 
that's not sufficient, not, not in the least. That does not cover um, the passages in scripture um, that uh, about, anyways, we can, we can talk about that, but the conviction, the illumination, the drawing, those sorts of things. The fact that the Holy Spirit inspired scripture 2000 years ago does not cover that. Now, if they mean that God is speaking in a much stronger sense than God spoke 2000 years ago and people wrote it down. So if they mean God is speaking like the way he, you know, when he creates the earth, you know, he, he spoke and the world came into existence. If that's what they mean, if, if they mean God is speaking to people that way now today, or, you know, like um, God calls things um, out of nothing or calls things uh, that are not as if they were uh, like in the Romans four. So if they mean, that voice of God, that that supernatural voice of God, working in people's hearts, I think I, I I'm okay with it. I, I think there are Armenians, and we we're just equivocating at that point. So, but but I I think it comes down to, okay, well, Holy Spirit inspired Scripture two thousand years ago. What's He doing right now in people's hearts? Right. So, yeah. What, I, you guys can tell me to stop talking if I'm talking too much. Just raise your hand if I'm talking too much. Let, let me just make this point before okay. you do that, because I think you're, this is just a like a qualification of what Dan's saying. I mean, I think we saw today, and and we've heard it before, that the, that at least late in the provisionist would say that God is doing all sorts of things now, and all a lot of the things, if not all the things that we say He's doing. The real point for them is that He doesn't need to do anything in addition to man getting the gospel like in that the holy spirit doesn't need to be involved in the in the man processing the gospel or like receiving the gospel like the holy spirit's externally involved in the sense that he might be inspiring the witnesses but he's not he's not directly working in the heart of the person in a personal active way like he would say well the, the gospel is doing that but the, the holy spirit himself in person isn't doing that at that time. So it's just, there's that difference where they say, oh yeah, he's doing all sorts of things, but he doesn't need to be doing those things in addition to what he's already done in the in the gospel and that sort of thing. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So I, what I, I, I can barely read. I, my vision is bad. I, I know you guys know that, but maybe the audience doesn't. So what, from what I'm reading here, um, man created in the image of God, image of God with a conscience. Yes, we were, created in the image of God and we have a conscience that's the ability to self-reflect upon your own values. Conscience, God didn't create us with a conscience that knows all things. If Adam and Eve had lived in the garden and God hadn't said, don't eat from the knowledge of good and evil, they wouldn't have gone and said, oh, I better not eat from that. Let's make a free will choice because we know in our conscience it's wrong to eat from that. God said, don't eat from that. They ate from it. Their consciences convicted them. They went and hid because they knew God had said not to eat that. It wasn't an innate ability that they had. And so we agree that man has a conscience. What is informing that conscience? What values are informing that conscience? Uh, and and man has uh, uh, cognitive abilities that maybe are somewhat like God's, right? I mean, we, we, we can reflect and we can think and we can analyze and and evaluate things, but um, we that we do not have God's conscience. We do not have the image of God's conscience. We this is what what we're taught. We didn't 
and and um, so I don't understand. Like I think that 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 first sentence kind of smuggles in that concept, and that's where I kind of trip over over that. And I, right. Yeah. I, that seems go ahead, Brian. Oh, sorry. I just was oh. going to say it seems to be helpful, Luke, because uh, um, late makes a, I guess makes a big deal of the conscience, but it seems to be like uh, uh, what we would regard as a strange idea of the conscience, like maybe what you called before, like a super conscience that's like um, almost infallible or at least really, really solid. Um, but what you're saying, I think, is much more biblical and common sense, even I, that we our conscience enables us to reflect on our own values, you know, and 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 on our own self and, and sort of measure ourselves against whatever standard we have. Mm -hmm. But yeah. On judgment I, consciences will convict us because we will be evaluated according to God's standards. He will judge us and present the evidence, and our conscience will be a witness against us, saying, Yeah, that's you, you got it right, God. That's that's how it's going. Yeah. And there is a and degree that, to which the God's law is, is written on our hearts, mm -hmm. but it's it's certainly not perfect, right? In the sense that um our the unbeliever's heart doesn't know all of God's ways, doesn't have all of God's ways like sort of naturally occurring to him, but certainly there's various of God's ways that are there in their in their conscience. Although yeah. I suspect with the phrase God's law written on your heart, you are referring to Romans two and I suspect you have a different interpretation than Leighton, which yeah, I'm sure we could point that out, but uh, um it's, yeah so it's, it's pretty significant and I think uh, most of most of the commentaries are gonna probably of any sort are gonna kinda well, I don't want to say that, but I, I do want to say that um, we, we might want to address that sometime. Yeah. So Leeton Leeton will look at texts like First Timothy four and and Titus one and say, yeah, the will can be seared, or, or pardon me, the conscience can be seared, or the conscience can be corrupted. Um, but I I mean I do think we also see in First Corinthians that that the will, just as you said, or pardon me, the conscience. Um, as you said, is affected by that culture around us. So we can see that even for believers, the conscience can be weak or it can be affected by those past associations with idols. Um, and so there is there is a, a conscience, but it it does need to be evaluated some way. There has to be that outside source. Um, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in, in the First Timothy 4 example is their pulses are living in hypocrisy to what they believed and th these are people who had uh, accepted the gospel and maybe Leighton is if saved, always saved. And many Arminians are once saved, always saved. But wh whatever, I I'm not. But if, if you, however you view it, these people are reflecting upon what they had been taught when they received the gospel and accepted it. And now they're turning against it. So it's not uh, a person on the street in their conscience is saying, Oh yeah, I don't. I don't believe the, the the references to hypocrisy of what they formerly believed. So, I do want to go back to this created in the image of God. And don't get it wrong, we are all still created in the image of God. Uh, I think we especially see this in Genesis nine. Even after the fall, we're not to 
kill people. We're not to murder because people are made in the image of God and it's like an attack on God if you're attacking somebody that's made in this image. So don't take this the wrong way, but there's something that's marred about the image of God in us after the fall and as a result of the fall. And the reason why I say that is because the descriptions of regeneration that are given in the New Testament by Paul. So in Colossians 3, um, verse 10, it says, put on the new man that is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And then he says the same thing in Ephesians 4, 24, um, put on the new man, which is according to the, um, parenthetically, according to God, I think it's the literal rendering, but according to the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So yeah. the the aspect that we are, we're like God in, in the sense that we have intellect and, and will, that, that part remains. But the holiness, the righteousness that we were initially created in is lost and devastated because of the fall. Yeah. And it has to be recovered in the regeneration and ultimately, we, you know, we'll become more and more like the sun. And frankly, it won't culminate until glorification. And so I, I think I think Michael Heiser has a good point here. When that's being spoken of, it's that we were uh, in the image of God, that we were we, we weren't sinning. There's no sin. There would never be any sinless. The one sin wasn't committed. If that one sin had been committed, all the other sins wouldn't have entered the world. And that one sin can't be recommitted. We can't go and eat of the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But but what what Adam and Eve were were imagers of God. They were God was communicating with them. He was the light, John 1 4, that they were living by, and they were imaging God. What God they were communing with God, they were really God's image in, in not physical sense, not just in mental sense, but in the spiritual sense. Right. Um, I, just in terms of, are we going to say something in relation to what he said? I, before we move on, I was just going to make a point about. No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say just the, the classic view, Calvinist and Arminian, of, of the image of God is that it is not lost in the fall. Even Calvinists would not claim that, that the image of God is lost in the fall, but they, would, they and Arminians would claim that it's been marred. So it's sort of like a you have a picture, you have the image, it's not destroyed, but it is it is it is twisted or marred. Impotent. Um, and so and and that's again like so regeneration has to restore that. And this ties into I, what I was talking about. I made the point probably a couple of different times, and I don't think Late never responded to it, but the way that the biblical anthropology has the natural man is is the flesh. I I think the NIV is really hits it well, captures it well with the translation of sinful nature. Um, whether one wants to talk about it as sinful nature or not, it is about a sinful impulse in us that even provisionists agree to. And the, the biblical presentation is we are only flesh dominated by our sinful nature when unbelievers. And so that's a huge deal with respect to this whole question of whether we need the Holy Spirit to help us believe the gospel because we only have sinful desires in our flesh. So how do we get, you know, good desires that help, that help us to turn to Christ. And that would be, that's where the, it, when you, once you're regenerated, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, continually giving you good desires. But for the sinful man without the spirit, that's where a convenient grace, where the Holy Spirit comes and 
creates those desires in us and draws us and works in us. Um, so. Right. Before, yeah, I agree. Before we move on and just um, not that we need to look at them now, but just a couple of comments that seem interesting or maybe should be addressed. One is this is just I'm not sure there's much to say here, but David Lewis said, but interestingly, Leighton doesn't does seem to teach that God does do something in the heart. He hardens those who resist the gospel. So that's an interesting, I don't know, I just like, yeah, that's a good point. Like we're, we're saying that the Holy Spirit has to like work in them to draw them. And, but it seems a little ironic that Leighton does seem to think that God hardens people's hearts sort of irresistibly at times and within their heart. So that's interesting. Or withholds information from them intentionally. But um, I think with, I mean, with the Arminian interpretation, when we're talking about hardening, in general, we're talking about the person who is resisting what they have and they become hardened. Uh, we're not talking about, at that point, usually, we're not talking about hardened from birth. We're talking about the person in their real life, in, in interaction with God, being hardened to God. And I, I know Leighton would, if he was here, he'd say he probably would give me at least half an amen on that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, um, we're not talking about double hardening or anything like that. It's that the, if you are a person and you're resisting God and you become hardened, that is your own fault. And it isn't something yeah. that you were dealing with from birth. It's the fact that you are resisting God. And that's yeah. that, that's a little bit more of some of the nuance. And that, that brings up just the whole point that, and this, I, I don't quite get why some of the, at least, at least provisionists or some people were finding this, um, Leighton's point about like, uh, persuasive or convincing about the idea about how people can become more hard and not because our view totally embraces that, that, you yeah. know, you have convenient grace where God is enabling people to seek him. If, if with that provenient grace, people resist him, then they can become more and more hard to him and his provenient grace and you can get a whole range. I, so I don't, yeah. I'm not quite sure if I was missing something. Is he making a, a good point so there that I'm missing? Who, who here believes we're born like Pharaoh in terms of hardness? Like, you know, who, who here, like raise your hand, right? No, that's not what we think. So, I mean, for my part, so I think there's, different approaches that Arminians can take on this. And that's interesting. I, I would say that I, I see, I've heard at least three different responses to Leighton's argument. So the, the, the first argument, and the one that I think is, is probably right, is that the, you know, we, our, our, our main issue is flesh, that we're, we're born in the flesh and the flesh profits nothing. Um, and hardening is for specific purposes in specific context. So for Pharaoh, it was, okay, so if Pharaoh had just said, hey, you guys go ahead and go after the second plague, just because he wanted to avoid the plagues, it's not right. Like he's not repenting of his sins and trusting God. No, he's just trying to avoid the plagues. But God didn't want that. He wanted to show off his, his power. And so he hardened Pharaoh and to get his name out. So that, that's the case with Pharaoh. 
then what about the messianic secret? Well, if they'd made Christ king, then maybe he wouldn't have gone to the cross. So there's a specific reason there. If the if the Jews, instead of saying crucify him, crucify him, had said, okay, let's just follow along for the bread and you know, the in the in the fish, the, the crucifixion wouldn't have happened. So there's it's not just that they're able to do something good, right? These are those are sinful options. Either reject spectacularly or reject in a quiet way. Well, God, to accomplish his purpose, allowed them to reject spectacularly. And the same is true of the of the Jews in Paul's that day in, in Romans 11. If the Jews had come for the coffee and donuts, then the gospel never would have gotten out. There wouldn't have been the big trial at, at Rome and all that other stuff, and the gospel wouldn't have spread in that wonderful way. So, um, again, it's not just... They, you know, can they not believe the gospel, but there's a specific purpose to this hardening. So it, I think that's the first answer. Now, the second answer I've heard is, well, hardening can even prevent the normal operation of what would be prevenient grace. And, you know, that subtraction of prevenient grace itself could cause the hardening. And the third it, the, the explanation is people can become more hard. You know, they can be, they can be, you know, some, some people aren't as hardened as Pharaoh are, but they have some hardness. Um, so, I mean, any three of those would answer his objection, but for, for whatever reason, he keeps, keeps pressing it. Yeah. I think um, the other half, oh, sorry, was that turning over someone? No, go ahead. Okay, I th think the other half of that is the activity of God in conversion. And um, I think we have sometimes a misunderstanding, and I saw it in the video, earlier today um, when you guys were discussing, like for example, Lydia or anyone who is following God prior to Christ's arrival or after Christ's arrival and they haven't heard about Christ. But it, it, from our perspective, provenient grace covers our life from beginning to end until we reach Christ and continues thereafter. So when we hear Lydia is a believer, she's not a believer in Christ. God is actively involved in bringing us all the way to where we need to be. And so when we, Lydia is a believer in Yahweh, she's, uh, she's worshiping, she's praying, and here God is involved in bringing her all the way to the finish line. And um, so we don't see, and this is sort of the, you know, the, the, the issue I have with the, the, the light, the light is, it was there with us in the garden. It's always with us. It's always influencing us. It can't be brought down to a minuscule uh, aspect of a historic event in a person's life. It's the sum total of all of it from beginning to end. And God, we're not, we're just not without God in, in that way. The spirit influencing us is this. And you know, if you look at Jewish literature, Pretty much the same. All wisdom comes from God. God influences man epistemologically uh, um, through the spirit. Um, earlier today, I was talking with some guys about uh, the wisdom of Solomon. You look at chapter one, uh, and then he goes through and uses all of the examples from biblical history. And he starts out in chapter one and says, uh, and I, I'm not saying the wisdom of Solomon is inspired. I'm just talking about Jewish perception. Uh the spirit, it's chapter one says, the spirit is involved in you obtaining knowledge of God of any sort. And then he said, wants you to be open to the spirit. And then he says, look at history, look at 
the uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Look at the Exodus. Look at uh, almost, verb I won't say verbatim, but very close um, uh, uh, um, explanation of what Paul says in Romans, where he says, um, um, looking at creation. And uh, a lot of people think, uh, a lot of commentaries will say, Paul is uh, uh, drawing from that and he's recrafting it to show that Jews are equally as bad as Gentiles, even though the wisdom of Solomon was to show that the Gentiles were bad for not desiring this wisdom. But um, anyhow, so in Jewish literature, uh, wisdom comes from submission to God and being prepared to, for God to uh, endow us with that, endow us with that information. So, right. So I had a thought about uh, a helpful way, because uh, I sometimes I worry that I'm like jumping the gun and talking about something. Like if uh, Dan, if you're about to move us on, if you could say, so I'm about to move us on, and that would give us an opportunity to. So that I can like hold any things if I no. if I feel like it should be addressed. At, no, go ahead, go ahead, please. Yeah, but that would be helpful though. So if you like, be, so then I'll just wait, and if I hear, then I then I don't have to worry that I'm. I could just let people talk and don't have to like, you know. So, anyways, the other thought uh, comment here I thought might be good to address is somebody asked. Uh, truth is beautiful asked, is the law written on our hearts the same as the conscience? Um, so I don't. Should we? <laughs> so, um, so certainly I think that the new covenant version that we see, I think in Hebrews chapter 8, 11, or whichever verse it is, it's in Hebrews 8. That sounds more like regeneration to me. So that's not the same. Everyone is born with a conscience. The, the conscience is is good it's not perfect right don't completely trust your conscience but it's 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 good enough most of the time it points um due north on moral issues but um no having the, the law written in, in our hearts i think is 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 more akin to um regeneration or the new birth and um at least that's my take i mean maybe you guys disagree but uh, that's what i think yeah, I think I think it's even in isn't it in Romans two where it distinguishes between that? Isn't it that the law is written on their hearts, but then we see that the conscience is either accusing or excusing. So the conscience is separate from that law written on the heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, my view of the home Romans, and I'm the only inclusivist of our group. I should say, I think I think all of you ex have expressed disdain for my perspective. <laughs> but, uh, no. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but I know I'm the only inclusivist. Um, I didn't know that about Andrew till today. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> the typical, uh, uh, Leighton has a very typical inclusivist interpretation of Romans 2. The problem with it is, is and this is a great debate to have, but, uh, and a lot of ink would be spilled, but uh, um, the Romans 2 is, from my perspective, and you'll find it in a lot of commentaries of all stripes, not Armenian, not Calvinist, not whatever. It's just, it's, it's common um, that Paul is talking and he sets up and he's talking vaguely at the beginning about what if Gentiles had the law, Gentiles, what about the Gentiles who have the law written on their hearts? And you're not exactly sure what he's talking about, but as it goes down to the very end of the chapter, you find out he says, what about 
if Gentiles had the spirit enabling them to obey the law. And so if uh, so in one of those verses, I can't even see the screen, guys, but they're right. I can see at the end of the chapter, but probably the verse 25 or 26 will say something about the spirit. Um, and so that's how I see Paul. He start vaguely talking about what if there's a type of gen. What if there's Gentiles that obey the law when they do this? And then he keeps going and going and going until you find out he's talking about who is the true Jew. The true Jew is anyone, Jew or Gentile, who is obedient to God through the Spirit. And so that's how I see Romans 2. It's just, he, he's it's, it's sort of, he's piquing your interest at the beginning, and then you find, oh, this is where he's going, Paul. And there's probably a lot of Jews who are like, come on, or... You know, but but uh, that's I think that's where Paul's going with that. And um, I could list a bunch of commentaries that have that view, but that wouldn't make my view correct. It would just say that I'm not the only one who thinks that. All right. So. I, OK, so circling back to the OK, so Leighton makes the argument why put a blindfold on the corpse? OK, so one, I think um, the blindfold is for a specific reason to uh, sin in some spectacular way, like we saw with Pharaoh and, and the others. And then the corpse is a, somewhat of a straw man. It's not a just a totally depraved person, but Leighton is thinking of it as an utterly depraved person. And that, so when you when you when you separate those two, okay, the hardening is for a specific purpose, not just unbelief in general, but unbelief in a specific way. To accomplish a specific purpose, and then there's a difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Then, then it starts to become clear what the answer to uh, his challenges. So, and then, I mean, and then go ahead. from my perspective, um, you know, my take on hardening is that it's typically not that there are never any cases of this, but typically is not in scripture is not irresistible or deterministic. Um, and and in fact, and sometimes maybe usually even corporate so that uh and and which is kind of like a, a little probably a different approach than what you're saying i mean what i think what you're saying addresses Leighton's objection but in in my view it's not even you know it allows for like you know free full free will going on in there like with pharaoh or uh with the jews um and so, yeah, just it's just a, it's a. Gotcha. So that also, I think, might answer it from a different perspective. From a different perspective, so, no matter how you're looking at it from four, this Armenian four view. Ways. There's four answers, Leighton. Yeah. <laughs> Please, <laughs> touch on them. Um, there's four answers to your question. Okay. Um, you guys want to carry on with the more of Leighton's video here? <laughs> like, oh. like, this is the exact opposite of the way the question went. Like, well, what I want about thirty hear, seconds I want to hear Andrew talk because he's very quiet. <laughs> Let him address the next question first. Oh, okay. Let's. Okay, I'll I'll play a bit, and then Andrew, why don't you uh, lead the way after we play a, a clip here? Sure. But our, our accusation is we don't believe the Bible teaches it. We believe it was introduced by Augustine and has become a very popular westernized way of looking at the nature of man from birth is that they are born totally unable 
to respond positively to the gospel. Um, and, and what we would say is, no, we believe man, uh, we're created in the image of God. We're created with libertarian free will. We have a conscience. We have the ability to deliberate, and we don't lose that because of the fall. Um, we still have that ability. Now, it doesn't mean we're not corrupted. doesn't mean we're not inclined towards sin and all those things that both Calvinists and Arminians, we all agree upon. It just means we still have the capacity to recognize that fact when confronted with the gospel and confess it in light of the gospel so as to find healing. So it would be mankind, fallen humanity, plus the Holy Spirit working by means of the gospel. So we do believe in prevenient grace insofar as prevenient grace is the grace that's necessary to come before. And we do believe it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's why it can sometimes get confusing because some some say, well, it's a direct working of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I think when the gospel is being proclaimed, that's a direct working of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is directly through the mouths of his you know, inspired authors and through those who are indwelled by him that's like what David said in Second Samuel, your, your words were on my tongue, you know, and so I give credit to the Holy Spirit, even when the Holy Spirit's using human means. And Did you, you want me to Andrew? go ahead? Okay. Yes, please. So, yeah, the one thing that, that has bothered me with discussions with provisionists is that they'll list these means and, and Leeton is always quick to say, but I believe the Holy Spirit's behind it and his followers don't always follow that. Um, and so we've seen it in discussions where they're saying, well, I believe the gospel is sufficient. I believe nature is sufficient. I believe conscience is sufficient. And it's like, well, no, it's it's the Holy Spirit using those means. And I think here he's he's being a little more careful. He's, he's much closer to the Arminian view, um, but his followers aren't. And and there's other times when he's not as careful. Um, and that was that was sort of the quote I brought up where he's saying, well, yeah, we believe in all these other means. And he's going to, in a minute, he's going to list all of those different means, including God working on the mind uh, unmediated. Um, but then he's going to say, or he never, never actually does, I think, in this video, say that it's not needed. And that's that's where the distinction is that it was yeah. tough to, to bring out. Yeah. And that and one of the problems there is and. I really, please don't misunderstand me, but Leighton can be very slippery with his language in these things. And I don't think he's being, uh, you know, intentionally like misleading or, or something, but but I, th I think he often feels drawn to use the same language we do because partly because it seems so obvious from scripture that, yeah, this is God doing it. But most people normally, like when he says the Holy Spirit uses these things, you have to be careful because what I've gotten from him is that he, he's not, like normally when you say the Holy Spirit is using it, you're thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit is personally, actively, and intentionally in the moment using that thing. So if we say that the Holy Spirit is using the gospel and works through the gospel, that means the gospel plus the Holy Spirit, not not the Holy Spirit somehow in the gospel as if he's part of the gospel in that sense, mm -hmm. but the Holy Spirit as a person works, uses the gospel. So that say the gospel message is believe in, you know, what an aspect of it or one way of talking about it, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. So the Holy Spirit takes that message and works in the person's heart. And, and there's very many ways that he can be doing that. So we're not tied to one specific thing, but one example would be that he simply 
impresses on the, that person's soul that this is true, that yeah. Jesus Christ died for you and you can you have eternal life if you believe in him. Um, and the problem is that when, when Leighton says, oh, the Holy Spirit uses the gospel, he really means in the past, he revealed the gospel to the church. He inspires the messengers to take it. Maybe he's even you know, working in them and, and giving them words to say. But for whatever reason, what's not necessary, not that he never does it, but it's not necessary for him to be himself using the gospel. Like the, the preachers use right. the gospel, and he, but the Holy Spirit himself doesn't have to. And we're saying if the Holy Spirit has to be doing it. And I, mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know. And I feel like this would seem so strange to so many people in my church, because like, most Christians, you know, will we'll talk about like how, oh, yeah, you can talk to, you, to someone to your blue on the face, but the Holy Spirit really has to be working on their heart. You know, nothing's going to happen if you just say it and the Holy Spirit's not there. So we need to trust in the Holy Spirit. We need to be asking God to be to be working in that person's heart. You know, Paul talks in the Thessalonians, uh, that Thessalonians passage, Thessalonians 1. I can't remember if it's, I think it's the first Thessalonians 1, could be second Thessalonians 1, where he says like, our, our message came with conviction and the power of yeah. the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and just so it's not just us saying this, I, we're getting these types of comments, you know, uh, this is a uh, misuse of direct, and Pelagius would a thousand percent agree with what um, Platon just said, um, it's intentionally, now, you know, I, I want to give him the benefit of that, so, but yeah. at the same time, I, I okay, so let, let's break it down this way, right, so if, if he denies total inability, which is an assertion of an ability, an ability to what? To believe the gospel. So yes, the Holy Spirit supernaturally inspired the gospel 2,000 years ago, but now it is a, in a written form. In that sense, it's a book like other books. Now, it is the word of God. Understand that. But he's not saying it's the word of God in the sense that, you know, God created the world or calls uh, things out, you know, out of existence. He's he's saying it's like a math textbook or the Quran or, you know, other books from that, from that standpoint. And we can believe it. So you're right. So it's the, although the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel 2000 years ago in his, in, in spirit filled preacher preaching the message, um, the Holy Spirit is not, certainly not, overcoming any inability, any weakness of our flesh to believe the gospel, because Leighton doesn't believe that. He's just, he's already said that in the very yeah. first point. He denies total inability. So whatever the Holy Spirit is doing, it's not overcoming an inability. And um, just, it's not enabling. I love that phrase you just used. Um, it is a weakness of our flesh. You know, there's there's a weakness of our flesh that needs to be overcome. Where our flesh is weak to believe the gospel, it, it it's it's unable on its own. But, um, and I I don't want to, uh, this kind of we I mentioned in the video, and so please, if anyone, this is kind of a little bit of a tangent. So if anyone wants to get us back on track, feel free to say, "Hey, let's not talk about that." Or if you were going to say something that was more direct about what we're just talking about, please feel free to just speak up now and say, yeah, I want to say something. Um, 
I, I mean, I picked up on that point of like, he said that the Holy Spirit is directly speaking through means. And then he goes on and, and it makes it indirect again. Like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, how? I, from my perspective, I, I wonder, I mean, maybe I'm weird or something, but uh, I just, I, I wonder when the, the light that was there at creation stopped, started compartmentalizing itself and became non-existent light and actually became just words or someone coming to you with a message. Uh, to me, they're coextensive. I don't, I, of course, someone comes to me with a message. The spirit makes me aware that that's significant, that I should be compelled to pay attention to it. Um, and so I don't really, I don't see um, any difference in that, that in the garden, the, the, the supernatural situation they were in is not unlike the situation we're all in. And it just hasn't stopped just because, uh, um, because Jesus came and now we have to talk differently about it. It's, I just don't understand that. Jesus has been the light through all of the Old Testament up until now. And the light that informed Adam and Eve are just basically still with us. So, so here's the tangent. Um, so, and I, I hesitate to talk about it because I, I feel like, and again, not not to um, not attributing any like uh, guile in Leighton with this, but he uses a lot of flowery language and noble sounding language language to like to uh, glorify the gospel, which is fine. But we'll he'll talk about it being the Holy Spirit rock gospel, the Holy Spirit reveal the gospel and i mean i i think if we step back and just really think about that i i don't i don't know this view holds up um not saying i mean i'm fine saying that the holy spirit inspired the gospel and whatnot but if we just think about what the, the gospel is um is basically like a message about the historical facts that happened jesus came he died for our sins he offers eternal life he's the king um his kingdom will have no end these things are, are are truths um and and so if we're talking about like especially like the death and resurrection of christ um i don't know it just to, for when Leighton talks about it like oh it's has power because the holy spirit created it or inspired it uh, i don't know do you know what i'm getting at there seems to be like like a mystical kind of like yeah it, it doesn't seem very deep if yeah. you like and i don't know maybe he would have like a lot of deep reflection on it but it almost sounds like it's just more kind of a surfacey point that he makes because it sounds and i don't again not to give guile to present it as as if there's guile there but it sounds oh yeah you can't touch that you can't like challenge that yeah but it's like what you were saying, Dan, at one point in, in an earlier conversation, if you have the word of God, you know, it's inspired. But like if you just have the Bible and it's just, you know, it's words on a page, you, it's it's not like there's special power within yeah. like <clears throat> it, within the words themselves. And then later in, in our conversation earlier today, Leighton was talking about how 
And I thought this was a key moment. He said, like, there's, there's power in the truth. So it's for him, it seems to be, it does seem a lot to be more about intellectual understanding and truth itself has power. And there's truth, there's truth to that, that there is power in truth, but, but not, um, but not in the way that we're talking about, like, oh, it's, it's like Holy Spirit power. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know if that anyone has any reflections on that because I feel like I'm not articulating well about it. I guess I haven't thought it through too much, but it's something that's uh, been on my mind a little bit. Yeah, Dan. Dan in a previous video had a comment um, about the the Viking sword that's sort of in, infused with power and then floats around and and cuts people on its own. And I thought that was a really good illustration of of what I, I think he is saying with his view. It's it's like God sort of put this power into the Bible and and now God can step back and and I, again it didn't really come out today. Um and, and here, even in this clip, he's making this distinction between working by means of the gospel versus working together with the gospel, where we're saying, well, no, we, we do agree the Holy Spirit works through the means of the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit working. Um, and that's that's what I, I keep thinking he's missing, um, or he's just out of step with, with the way that the scripture speaks when it's always talking about God being the one who's revealing, uh, God being the one who's drawing, God being the one who's convicting. Um, and yes. he keeps saying, well, it's the means doing these things instead. Yes. And, and that just reminds me of like Luke, again, in private discussion, I think if I remember correctly, was talking about um, when Paul talks about how he, uh, he, how does, how does he talk about it? Basically, he, he planted the seed. And Apollos and watered. Apollos watered and God gave the growth. That's right. Yeah. Right. And so planting the seed that's the spreading of the gospel message basically right and watering mm -hmm. it is more of that and so god giving the growth is something else it's with it it's alongside it but it's it's not the same right yeah yeah, and yeah. so i think that's yeah and i you know as i'm thinking about the point i was trying to make i mean god god does uh, jesus does promise the apostles that the holy spirit will lead them into all truth and so maybe that's the type of thing that Leighton is thinking about in terms of like the gospel being um you know inspired by the holy spirit so yeah so maybe that's that makes more sense i mean the, pr the proof text he used today earlier today in the earlier video was Hebrews 4.12, where it says, the, you know, the word of God is a two-edged sword. But if you read the context, and I've never had a provisionist in person, and I even mean interacting on the internet, who will, if they stay in the conversation, that won't admit that that's not saying the gospel is powerful. They'll say, if you look at it, it's talking about judgment. And so you read the sentences before, just a few sentences before and a few sentences after, and it's 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 warning about us about a judgment and god is going to search within us that word it's it's actually god personified god's searching within us and there will be nothing hidden and on judgment day that will be revealed what god has found cutting through bone and marrow and um it doesn't say in the verse that he reveals it to us it just says god will know from that and that's a different uh, application that's a different um, meaning than 
the way he has typically used it over the past, I, I guess I've been aware of Leighton for three years, maybe, but uh, um, that's how he's definitely used it. Not so much in the past. I haven't listened to him much in the past year. I've just been too busy. Uh, sorry, Leighton, I, I love listening to you. But, uh, um, uh, but that's not how it's used in the context of the passage. It's talking about a judgment coming and God is searching us and finding out all everything all our thoughts and, and deeds and nothing is hidden from him so be prepared and uh that's what that's about but that's a favorite proof text of him about how powerful the gospel is and the gospel is very powerful because it's the power of salvation salvation for all who believe it's not the power of salvation for all who don't believe so what the point there is is that if you believe it's the power of salvation um, so like uh, Brian said, it's like, how do we come to belief? That's really what we're more concerned about. And um, every verse in the Bible is also powerful. They're all powerful. They're all God-inspired. But if I, maybe, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'll just go ahead and do it. Like I do the the 10,000 monkeys. And if, the, if I have 10,000 monkeys and I train them to type it, a typewriter, randomly eventually one of them by chance statistically it's going to happen they will type out the gospel now is that gospel any different than the one written in my nasb bible it's you know they typed it out so the message is how it relates to god and why is this significant over all other messages and uh, you know, I think Leighton does the, uh, I sent you a car, boat, and helicopter, but this is really the car, boat, and helicopter kind of question. What is it that is the reason that we come to believe? Uh, if everyone sends me a car, boat, and helicopter, I have to pick the right one. How am I going to pick? Why would I even consider picking one? A car drives up to my house, I'm not going to get in it. What's going to compel me to do it? What's going to convince me to do it? What's going to inspire me to do it? Um, and so that's really what we're talking about. When someone is presented with the gospel, Leighton is correct that that person has enough ability to consider it and begin to understand it and, and, and desire to see if it's true. Um, but he would say it's the conscience that does it. Um, I, I really question that. The, uh, you will have a conscience because when you're presented with truth uh, or facts, you have to decide which one is true and make a decision. That's, it's not that you believe something is true and you're rejecting it uh, when, when you're pre being presented with the gospel uh, inherently. It's, it's, uh, everyone is communicating with you. And the other problem is, is that um, I just feel like, and I know this is being an overstatement, that uh, you know, Satan has a lot of powers that we give him credit for that Leighton wants to um, isolate when we discuss this conversation from God also having. So if Satan can affect your mind, affect your perception, affect your beliefs, affect your motivations. You're not ontologically changed, are you? Every, every time Satan communicates, I mean, Paul makes it very clear. Satan is affecting believers as well. He warns about, about Satan quite a bit and, and Satan's tactics, his schemes in the church. 
Um, so uh, are we ontologically changed when Satan communicates with us? No, and no more than God. And so I just give God the equal range of powers, at least, that Satan has. But I think that's more powerful. So your point is well taken. I, I, go ahead. Uh, well, there was just a comment I was going to address, but I don't, I don't know if we want to do that. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, which one do you want me to call this up? This is Paul, Paul Anker says, it seems strange to claim the necessity of something that is admitted to be not effectual in many instances of its application. How do Arminians know that God applied PG to those who rejected the gospel? Okay, so I would say, one, it, to me, it does not seem strange to claim the necessity of something that is admitted to be not effectual in many instances of its application. Uh, because, like, this is the issue of what, how do you term this in, I don't know if I'll get this right philosophically, uh, necessary and sufficient conditions. I mean, you might have a necessary condition, uh, but that doesn't guarantee success. You know, you need a sufficient condition for that. Um, and, and, and even like uh, Leighton in our discussion was giving examples of this, of something that might be necessary, uh, but is not sufficient. And one example of that that he gave which uh, which is kind of an alternative to, to mine because uh, the types of things I was saying, because I was talking about the lifting of the weight and needing someone's help, but that doesn't change your, your nature. Um, but what he said was one condition that you need for believing the gospel is for the gospel to be, for you to know the gospel, for it to be presented to you. Well, that that's something that's necessary, but is is not effectual in many instances in terms of belief, um, if that makes sense. And then how do Arminians know that God applied Peruvian grace to those who rejected the gospel? And that would be the proof text that that's well that that we appeal to. Any number of them. I love 1 Corinthians 12, 3. I think it is a knockdown argument for it. Uh, I've, I've heard some people try to say that the context doesn't bear that out. I, I, I mean, I just think you're not understanding the text. The, the context is very, I think, is very supportive. Um, but we, maybe we'll talk about that later. But point being, we go by scripture that would say that, you know, the heart is deceitful, you know, above all else, it's desperately sick and wicked, um, that, that, uh, not as unbelievers are uh, dominated by the flesh in which there is nothing good. Um, all the passages that Calvinists point to for the need for like, re, you know, regeneration, um, you know, pass, any number of passages, uh, Jesus saying that you need to, uh, that uh, you can't come to him unless the father draws you. Uh, John 1, 4, what Luke's been drawing attention to John 1 9 where it talks about the, the the true light enlightens every man that comes into the world um yeah so I could probably go on with proof text but the point being we, we just look to those texts that one would say um that people are unable to believe the gospel unless God helps them therefore PG is needed and we know that uh I guess how do I mean to know that God applied PG to those who rejected grace? Yeah, 
I think, isn't the question yeah. sort of how do we know if they rejected the gospel, maybe they never got Perbrenian right, grace at all. Right. And that would yeah. be more the Arminian and actually provisionist common belief that, that God loves all and wants all to be saved. And, yeah. um, and then passages that might teach that, like uh, John 12, 32, is it 32, 31, somewhere around there. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Yeah. Um, that God wants, uh, you know, Timothy, God wants all men to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, those types of texts would lead us to believe that God, well, first, Jesus says it in John 12, but other texts as well that might imply it. Yeah, what more yeah. can I done for my vineyard? Those sort of sorts of things. The provisionists in the Armenian see eye to eye on that. Um, interesting. Uh, hey, guys, you know, I know there's people on here who aren't either provisionists or Armenians. Um, anytime John 3.16 comes up, just Google John 3.16 uh, uh, William Mounts, and he just has a perfect description of the grammar and why it the Armenian interpretation is right. And he's a Calvinist. So just look at it. I was looking at it the other day when I was talking, communicating with J.D. Martin, and J.D. Martin had put up an article about how uh, it, we shouldn't assume that this means everyone. And William Mounts does a really good job. And uh, he, he uh, also refers to uh, Wallace saying, affirming his, his interpretation. Um, so I, that's just a Easter egg to throw out to anyone who's not a Calvinist <laughs> or and a Calvinist. You should read it. So, yeah, I, and I, I would just say it's, it's not only when the gospel is presented, but, but I also think that the Holy Spirit is working ahead of that proclamation. And I would point to those verses, uh, that, that Dr. Abascano, uh, named. So John, John 1, 9 and, uh, and John 12 and John 16, where it says that the Lord Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. Um, I think I think the Holy Spirit is already at work preparing hearts, drawing us to the gospel, and He's also working during the bro gospel proclamation. So I don't I don't think there's ever a time when the gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit isn't isn't there working, persuading the hearers um, of of the message. Yes, Amen. Although some Armenians do think that God uh, is ne doesn't necessarily, but like I, I think all of us here agree that he yeah. does. I don't know about Dan. Um, no, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, all of us here agree yeah. that, that whenever the gospel's preached, God is there helping people to believe. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, yeah. I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit can come on, on more strongly at times and, and doesn't come on as strongly at times. And, and that's where you see revivals, for example, where the Holy Spirit is coming on in power. Um, but, but the Holy Spirit is always acting, I would say. And, and for Dan's sake, let me maybe qualify normally. Maybe, maybe, maybe right, yeah, normally. Because I can imagine yeah, you might yeah. think, well, there are special instances where God, you yeah, know. If someone, if someone is judicially hardened, perhaps, you know, like, uh, uh, okay, let's say, for example, the stony soil, or right? maybe <laughs> the gospel is bouncing off of them or something. But, but whatever. Yes, normally that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and judicially hardening is after. A certain a period of rejection. Yeah. So I agree. Um, so I, I think we're coming to an hour and a half here. So maybe we can start to wrap this up. But I did want to bring up one other point that just kind of um, stuck with me from the conversation. It wasn't something Leighton said, actually. It was uh, something that Dustin said. But it comes down to John 6. Um, and he was saying, well, 
you know, the reason why people couldn't believe is because they were hardened. I just wanted to bring the text in and see if you guys, see if, what you guys make of the John 6 text. But um, so uh, this is obviously in the bread of the, the great bread of life discourse, but um, I think the key verses are going to be 44 and 45 and then 65, but we can look at them real quick. Um, so no man can come to me unless the father who sends me draw him and I will raise him up in the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught of God. Everyone that has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And then down in 65. Um, and, he, and he said, therefore, I said unto you that no man can come to me unless the father, uh, unless it has grant, been granted to him by my father. What do you guys make of that? And do you agree that, okay, that the reason why people can't come to Christ is because they're the hardened Jews who had been rejecting over and over and over again. And so they've gotten to this point where they can't come un unless they're drawn by the Father. Well, I think he's saying, he's telling them to return to the Father for that. And I think in, in at this point in John, he is depicting himself as in submission to God, to the Father and doing the Father's work. So he's not going to say, um, listen and learn from me at that point. And so when when he at when he's doing that, he's he's expecting them to to go back and relate to the Father at a, at at the level they they were expected to in submission as being taught by the Father. Right, and so that, but that's kind of a prerequisite to be able to come to Christ. Yeah, you, not going to happen. So this ties into, I think, maybe some of what I was saying today about parables. Um, I think that Leighton's view demands that we have Jesus being um, duplicitous in presenting himself as wanting people to be saved. He explicitly says in John five, "I say these things to you that you may that you might be saved." Um, and so, because like, apparently I think you're saying that Leighton or at least some perspective sees this aimed at more like at people who are specifically hardened and not a general, uh, a general situation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I think John five, you know, I, I would think that the people in John five are similar to the people in John six, that it's not like, Oh, some, okay. These people in John five aren't hardened, but the people in John six are. Um, and so there Jesus tells them, I say these things to you that you be saved. Um, and so, and that seems to like bring us into Leighton's argument against himself about like hardening. So why is Jesus speaking to them to be saved? If he knows that he's hardening them to keep them from being saved. Um, the other thing is, is with, uh, he, he says, all that the father is giving to me will come to me. I, uh, I don't, I can't even read right now. So, um, uh, but, the, the, I believe that's the present participle there. I'm very confident, but where is this? All that the father. 30, 30, 37, 637. Oh. And, and, um, to me, that is just the activity of God. God is giving them to Jesus as an active thing. This is very much like the Lydia situation where God is literally giving them to Jesus. Um, of course, all of their previous uh, life 
relationship with God is being summed up here because if they haven't been relating to the Father, if they haven't been learning, then they will not be believing. And so he's pointing to both the problem and the solution at the same time. So, and and also I think maybe addressing part of your question, Dan, or I'm not sure if this, I mean, I, I feel like this addresses it in part. I just, this language does seem um, sort of universal when like, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the father draw, who sent me draws him. So I, 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 I do understand while well, you could, he, the thought maybe, or the suggestion is when he says that he's, he's talking like, I guess is the idea, oh, no one in this group can come to me. No one in this hardened group where, like, as you read it, I think the natural, more natural take is that it's not it's not limited to this group. He's just talking in general. No one can come to me because that language of no one can come to me just, I don't know, to me comes across more universal. Um, you know, it right. doesn't and seem the, limited there. Would you, yeah. would you guys say that drawing is an ontological change in nature? No, <laughs> no. No. Stop. Um, my, and I, I share this with some of you. Double act ontologically. Come on. I mean, can't God have some of the same powers of Satan? Come on. Give him some credit. So my, my, my mantra on this one is that um, John, this John 644 here indicates that more than the preaching of the gospel is necessary for people to believe because the gospel is already being preached by Jesus himself. And Jesus let them know that something more was necessary for them to come to him because he, he's basically preaching the gospel to them, which is come and come to me, believe in me. Yeah, and, yeah right, right here in verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have everlasting life and okay. gospel, baby. And so then Jesus says, because he says to them, no one can believe this. No one can come to me with, you know, in believing that unless the father draws him so that's that drawing of the father is more is in addition or alongside of the gospel um and and it also seems more than just i I mean i I could anticipate maybe the argument could be well and so that's just talking about the father's prior teaching but that doesn't seem to be the case because uh like this he's talking about the father drawing now Right. So it's sort of like more like it could involve what God has said in the past, but it's like a, a present interaction with God. Giving, in the person. Yeah. Present participle is giving to me. The, the interesting thing to me is uh, two things regarding Dan. He, he just read the verse about the father's will and then um, doing the father's will. And earlier today and well, the video where you guys are in the video, Dan in the chat put up. Uh, John 8 44 about um, the people who denied Jesus doing the will of Satan. Now we have in here in the same book, some people doing the will of the father and some doing the will of Satan. And this goes back to my point is that at least give God some of the same powers as Satan. Yeah. <laughs> so God's drawing is and Satan has a drawing. Uh, this is all just, common uh 
people, this doesn't take too much deep thinking, I don't think, to understand that there's more here than he, they're just talking about words. Of course, all the, everything the prophets have done, all that is, is, is part of it. But, but Jesus is the light, God is the light, and all of these people are expressions of the light, communications of the light, and we're not separated from knowing God's and experiencing God's will and understanding it through his communication. And we're also not separated from understanding Satan in his communication. The, the dynamics of the garden aren't really that far away from us at, at any given point. And let me just add like textually here, so it follows up. So no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So uh, this idea, so it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. This seems to be, go along with the idea of, uh, again, all, everyone the Father is giving me, all that the Father is giving me will come to me. Uh, and so this seems to be a teaching that's specifically in relation to Christ. So, and again, it may, I think it probably does involve what's been past written in scripture, but also there's an active present connection between God, his word in the past, and then Jesus now and God, bring, the Father bringing that together for those who, who follow him in, the, in that present time. Right. And he goes on to clarify that this teaching, so he, he goes on to say, well, it's not like physical teaching with the chalkboard, right? Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is of God. He has seen the Father. Right. I mean, he, he he's, he's clarifying, you know, it's, right, anyways, um, that it's, yes, the Father is teaching, but he's teaching spiritually, not physically. Yeah. Um. Let's see. So we have uh, some more Paul anchor questions here. Uh, can sure. we call every interaction of the spirit with man grace when it does not issue in belief? A Calvinist would not think. I thought grace was God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Well, even uh, uh, most Calvinists would even call most of those interactions um, common grace, even if they wouldn't uh, consider them Provenient grace in an Arminian sense, but uh, I mean, I I would refer you to the uh, the facts outline on the, the Society of Evangelical Arminians page, especially on the resist point, the resistibility of grace. You'll see a lot of uh, interaction with uh, text. I think Luke brought out a, a really strong text, though. I think it was Isaiah five four. Um, um, what more could I've done to my vineyard that I haven't done for it? Um, when I look for it to bring forth good grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. Doesn't the question assume effectuality? I mean, it, it assumes, I think, that uh, whatever God does is effectual, even if it's just enabling, you know? And uh, um, so uh, interesting, you know, like it's, it's like um, uh, fruits of the spirit are God's grace, but they can be abused in church, you know? It's, it's not, uh, God's grace is not limited to effectuality. And I, I don't, I, I wouldn't even know where to, I think that really just comes from a Calvinistic perspective, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah. I don't understand. And then his next comment is calling the failure of God grace is no go for a Calvinist. Uh, 
that I mean that's yeah. problematic because I mean we don't call it the failure of God. I mean if what you want to say is if God's we, we do see in scripture that God doesn't always get what he wants. Like scriptures where say God wants such and such and then that doesn't come to pass. God's will is for us to not sin, but we sin. Um, and so and then so if God gives us grace, help to do something, but we don't do it, I, I think that's a failure on us, not on God. I mean, some of this is semantics, like how you're framing it. But I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. God hates sin. Sin yeah. happens. Right. Um, before we close, I would like to talk about, uh, uh, share some thoughts about uh, 1 Corinthians 12.3, if, if, if you don't mind. Here, I'll pull it on the screen. And and I, I probably I have I wrote some stuff in conversation with Leighton at one point, so I might even just read that or some of it. Um, okay, so all right, so and then you know if we'll see how this goes. So so Paul says in First Corinthians twelve three, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Confessing Jesus as Lord is one way of summing up faith for Paul. Like confessing Jesus as Lord is one way that Paul would describe faith, the saving response to the gospel. So as he says in Romans 10, 8 through 13, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. But the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we see the saving response to the gospel can only be given by the Holy Spirit, that is, by his power and help. But that cannot be referring to the gospel itself. You can't say, oh, the help the by the spirit here just means by the gospel because the confession of Christ as Lord is the response to the gospel that brings salvation. So it's, it's not the gospel. It's the response to the gospel, the response that brings salvation. So in a word, it's faith. We cannot believe apart from the Holy Spirit empowering us, helping us. Now, obviously, believers will confess Christ as Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not like Paul's statement there is limited to the response to the gospel. It's not like his focus is on, on necessarily the initial uh, act of faith, although there is some connection to that in the, in the context. But it applies to any time that someone confesses Christ as Lord, which obviously refers to a genuine confession of Christ as Lord, not just empty confessing outwardly with no inward commitment. Obviously, an unbeliever can mouth the words, Jesus is Lord, but but that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's talking about a genuine heart confession of Christ as Lord. And, and, and that's whether in response to the proclamation of the gospel when someone gets saved or, or if they're a believer. So what's key to see in the context of this discussion is that no one can believe the gospel unless the Holy Spirit enables the person to do so. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so we have in Acts 8.27, Paul, uh, the author there, Luke, indicating that the believers believed through grace. Now, um, I actually have more to say here, but, but I want to take a, a brief 
um, just kind of step back to say often the types of uh, objections here I see is people will say this is about spiritual gifts so this Paul's not talking about conversion or this is about X Y or Z it's not about conversion and I I think this is a really important point to make this is the type of objection you sometimes get there sometimes it can be valid but many times it's not where someone will say because the author wasn't specifically talking about X therefore that's an invalid scripture to use but we all inter uh, if somebody makes a point if somebody makes point X while while really talking about a bigger point a point X is still a valid point and if it's true then you can use it in your theology and when, when we're talking about scripture so this is true of like the Trinity nowhere in scripture do we get a passage that intends to teach the Trinity per se to say okay uh, we're trying the author has in mind the Trinity and he's trying to teach the Trinity we get the the specific pieces of the Trinity in scripture we that the Father is God the Son is God the Spirit is God uh, they they are persons who can relate to one another or if you prefer centers of consciousness that can relate to one another however you you kind of uh, express that uh, the point is that we, those are still that's still valid to use that truth that is established in trying to make an argument for something else in fact much of the theology that we get in the New Testament is given for another reason Paul is often giving us incredibly deep theology in order to make the point that we should love one another or be unified or have no division Philippians 2 where we get the the you know the famous and awesome passage about Christ emptying himself taking on a human nature suffering and then being given the name that's above every other name Paul Paul talks about that because he is calling the Philippians to imitate Christ be humble and to be unified and love one another so if you're like oh he he doesn't affirm that christ is god there because he's talking about humility that's a no-go i think it's a silly way to argue if it's a truth that is established it's trying to make another point that truth carries forth it can be used in theology um now th there are times when you can say oh Paul wasn't that 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 particular thing wasn't in mind. I think you have there's a specific probably conditions that have to be present where you would say, oh, that's not what he's talking about. So it, that's that's like I think that usually comes to pass when it's actually that truth that's under under um, in question when the truth that's stated is actually not what Paul is talking about the thing that's being alleged. If that makes sense, like. Uh, you know, when Paul said, uh, I wish I had already uh, example came to me, but like sometimes somebody will say, oh, this means this. Oh, a good example would even be the gospel is the uh, the power of God for salvation to those who believe. My point to that is, well, Paul wasn't isn't talking there about the power, about the power to believe. He's talking about the power to salvation. So therefore, it, it doesn't work for the provisionist to appeal to that scripture as establishing uh that the gospel itself enables you to believe okay all right so then i just want to talk about the if uh, the context of uh of 
12-3 here. Because uh, Layton did respond to me back then. And so what he said, basically, at that point, he might have a different take now, but um, he said that it's about discerning the spirit of the messengers or influencers so that the church wouldn't be deceived by false teachers filled with pagan spirits. And then my reply to that was that that concern does not show up anywhere in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And so what it's actually about in context, I think exegesis here is that it is about spiritual gifts in the church in love and unity in light of the practice of spiritual gifts, which seems to have been problematic for the church's worship, order, love, and unity. So Paul is, he's talking to the Corinthians, they're having trouble over spiritual gifts and they're having disunity over it. Some people are vaunting themselves over others or at least looking at, you know, certain people as better than others or looking at certain gifts as uh, making people more important, those types of issues. And so Paul makes the point in the first place that no one can confess Christ as Lord except by the Spirit because in the light of the troubles that the Corinthians were having in church and worship in the exercise of spiritual gifts, which were manifestations of the Spirit, he wanted to affirm that every Christian, whether they were speaking in tongues or not, has the Spirit. If someone has truly confessed Christ as Lord, then he has the Spirit, which gives God's approval to all Christians, not just ones with special dramatic manifestations of the Spirit. So chapters 12 and 14 are about spiritual gifts and corporate worship. Right in the middle comes the love chapter, which is there because of the problems that they were having, the, the relational problems they were having over spiritual gifts. Right in, in, in the middle of that, we get the love chapter because the, the greatest call is to love one another because love is the most important way to be what guides the practice of spiritual gifts. And then there's just no concern shown in the context for helping the Corinthians be on guard against false teachers filled by pagan spirits. As if anyone in the Corinthian church was saying, let Jesus be accursed. And the Corinthians needed to know that that was not a good statement or not a Christian statement. It's actually about how every believer has the spirit and therefore a spiritual gift or multiple gifts to be used in love to build up the church and that all are valuable members of the body because again all have the spirit and a role to play and so i love this verse in relation to this disagreement because it's a succinct scriptural statement that in my opinion simply refutes Leighton's whole position on the matter of human inability depravity and prevenient grace it, it in itself establishes that we need the holy spirit's power in addition to the gospel in order to believe which then implies inability because we're not able to believe without the Spirit helping us. So, um, let's see if, uh, see if there's that was great. Yeah, appreciate that. So, so there's other things I could say there, but just if you look, there is, um, where I mean. There is some connection to conversion there. I think Paul clearly has like has it all in mind, um, like whether it be conversion or not, um, because let's see, yeah. So, so he starts out saying, "I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. You know that when you were pagans, some somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know." So therefore, because when you were unbelievers, you were plagued by idols, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there you do see him thinking about 
conversion to a degree. Oh, you were not saved and you were involved in paganism. And I want you to know you can't, you can't say Jesus Christ is Lord except by the spirit. So there's, there is some view towards, uh, towards conversion, but also clearly in the context view towards, oh, believers too now, no one, since you need to, the Holy Spirit to say Jesus is Lord, whether it's conversion or whether it's now, anyone who can say Jesus is Lord with in, in sincerity has the whole, you know, has the Holy Spirit working and, uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So I think that's, sorry, sorry. That was great. I think that one verse settles the issue and Luke gave us a quote, uh, earlier, not necessarily in this chat where I, one of the church fathers was saying something very similar about First uh, Corinthians twelve three. Not, yeah, not, three, three of the church fathers actually refer to that the same way. Uh, I don't know if you, I can't. I'm on my phone, so I can't look it up. But uh, uh, yeah, I, it's Ambrose, I believe, commenting on Luke chapter one, I think. Uh, but. Uh, uh, he's a, he's an example of someone doing that. It it drove me crazy. Somebody in the chat while we were doing the the thing earlier in the day with with Layton, somebody said, because I we did raise twelve three, but we didn't get into the exegesis of it. But somebody said that's about spiritual gifts, and it's like so what? It's about spiritual <laughs> gifts, and it establishes that you cannot say Jesus is Lord, meaning you cannot express faith in Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. All right. Wonderful. Well, uh, I guess we're approaching the two hour mark here, so we probably need to wrap this up. Um, I, I will say, so uh, Paul Anker asks, you know, for Armenian resources on the atonement. He asks about this specific site. Um, uh, here, you'd find, uh, I guess, discussions between uh, Turton Fanek and myself on um so the, the, the first Timothy 2, 4 through 6 discussion is going to get into the atonement heavily. The first Timothy 4, 10 discussion is going to get into the atonement heavily. The John 3, 16 one is. Um, but maybe some of the others uh, can suggest some other Armenian resources on the atonement. I would certainly suggest the Society of Evangelical Armenian site and just search the atonement. And you're going to get um, a, a ton of resources. But is there, if there's some specifically... Um, that you guys would would like to recommend to Paul, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, actually, I could think of. So he he seems like a, Paul seems like a Calvinist, or at least Calvinist leaning. He says the so. provisionist, provisionists seem to believe in delayed atonement. Um, actually, I, I mean, I, I'll use their word. We do believe our mains do believe or tend to believe in what we'd call provisional atonement. That atonement is provisional, and that uh, that it doesn't become applied to us until we believe. In fact, Calvinists believe the same thing, that, that it's not applied to you until you believe at least in a way. I guess they might think it's applied to you um, in certain ways before you believe, but like kind of in earnest or, or for the most part, it's, it gets applied to you when, you when you believe. You know, you're not forgiven until you believe. Yeah, the Armenian right? view is... I think it's Romans in Romans four somewhere. It says atonement through faith is what Paul says. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's in five, chapter five, it's chapter four, but 
um, that's that's the common view. It's just that's and, literal. Ben Henshaw yeah. has some great uh, a great three series of um, articles on this on the website, uh, and he uses that language of provisional atonement. Um, I might even be able to find that, although I don't think I can put. I, I don't think I can post in the chat here. I'd um, um, yeah, I'd also recommend just David Allen's. Uh, we we've got a series of his uh, reviews of the Calvinist book um, from Heaven He Came in Solder. Uh, um, very very good. So he reviews chapter by chapter, and he does go through it, and he'll distinguish between um, atonement applied versus um, uh, versus the extent and uh, and or I guess extent application and and intent to the atonement. And I think that might be what you're getting at. Okay. I agree. Yeah, Dave Allen. David Allen on on that is, I think he's tremendous on it. Okay, so I found. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah. So Ben Henshaw has provisional atonement part one, dealing with John Owen's Arminian dilemma. Then he has a part two, provisional atonement. Uh, provision is consistent with foreknowledge. And then uh, there's a part three that I have. I um, oh, here we go. And then there's a part three, uh, provisional atonement part three, the integrity and justice of God and the gospel offer. So I don't know the best way to get, get those, uh, to you. Cool. Um, well, I would just recommend the, uh, if you, if you search them on the, uh, evangelical Armenian website, they, they should come right up. Yeah, and also you can get them at his own website. So, uh, in fact, a couple. I mean, I was just search. I was just googling right there. You can search for it on our the C's website. But um, if you Google it, you may get you may get our website or Ben's. Either one is fine. Ben Ben defends his own house tremendously well. So like he does get uh, in a lot of his posts, he gets a pretty big comment section where he like often argues with Calvinists and just in my opinion just decisively uh beats them down um so <laughs> in yeah, a loving way <laughs> very good with all christian love and charity he grounds grinds them into the dust uh, <laughs> no, but he does well i think he, he's very he's just a tremendous armenian thinker and writer and uh and he usually does a great job very good. So um, I guess any closing thoughts here, just going around uh, one last time uh, as we close up here. So um, uh, we'll, I guess we can just go straight down the left column. So, for, um, you know, from for my, for my side, the, the um, assertion of uh, the ability to believe the gospel naturally um, does not take seriously the text of scripture that talk about our fallen condition, the impacts of the fall and the effects of sin on our life and the flesh and how our flesh is restraining us. And then also the specific passages that talk about our inability to believe the gospel without God's drawing and opening our hearts and those sorts of things. So, I mean, I, I think that's where, that's where I, I would leave it um, as, as far as a, a summary, uh, summary statement, but uh, that's my side. Um, Andrew, do you have some closing thoughts you'd like to share as we wrap yeah, this up? Yeah, you, you mentioned earlier about um, not seeing an ontological change in, in John 6, and I, I tried to bring that out in the debate um, when we were talking about Lydia, 
Um, and that was one of the reasons I, I don't really think Dr. Flowers has a good understanding of the Arminian view, because so many of these proof texts, I mean, we look at Lydia, we, we name that passage time and again, uh, John 6, we name time and again, and uh, all of those texts are showing somebody who has already been moved by the Spirit in some way, but we're still saying that we're seeing God doing a work there, um, a necessary work, it, it needs to be done. Um, and and we're not seeing an ontological change. There wasn't one, that very first movement of the Holy Spirit. There isn't one in those texts that we keep pointing to. Um, so that's, I think it's very clear that what you're thinking is our view is is not our view. Um, Brian, uh, some closing thoughts here? Yeah. One, I would wonder like, how we want to proceed in terms of are we going to continue going through the video at some point or like what do we want to do there and like making are we going to be making this available different things like that that's just one one thing that's not so much of a closing thought closing thought i would say um yeah i mean kind of piggybacking on what you said dan um i think layton's view doesn't take into account just how sinful human beings are and how sinful scripture seems to present human beings. Um, I don't think it takes into account the flesh enough and the, 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 the spirit flesh dichotomy that Galatians five talks about where we have, where Paul basically says you, you can't even do what you want. You're either doing what the flesh wants or you're doing what the spirit wants. You don't just like operate in a vacuum. So you, you, there are these two, you know, inspiring forces, but the unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So, um, and that's why prevenient grace has to kind of provide that to some degree, sort of not from indwelling them. I mean, he can work inside of them, but it's, it's not the same as indwelling. Um, I guess I want to say too, that a lot of, I think Leighton's approach, I think to me anyways, the, normally people will hear the Holy Spirit does this or God does this and they think that you know, Leighton always talks about means and yes I believe the Holy Spirit uses means but usually when we talk about someone using means it's that person using the means so yeah. if the Holy Spirit uses the gospel then like we had that hammer illustration that it's the Holy Spirit in the room holding the gospel and hammering it as opposed to he gave it to somebody else to do and somebody else does it and he chairs that person along while they're doing it or something. And, and that goes with just many, many statements about which, which scripture says like God gives the growth. Uh, it, the, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I, I mean, before Leighton, I don't know that it ever occurred to me when, when it talked about the Holy Spirit convicting that somehow the Holy Spirit didn't need to be the one who was like personally administering that conviction. Um, and so I think we see just time after time where the scripture is really exalting God and talking about how God is the one doing these things. And to me, also the normal reading of that is, okay, then that's God personally doing that. He uses means, but he's personally involved with those means and not, not just, okay, so the means is somehow separated from him in, in some way where like it's really someone else doing it and he just kind of commissioned that or he, he revealed it, but then those people go and do it. And then again, yes, Leighton will say, oh yeah, yeah, God does do all those things. He can do all those things, but then his, his point then comes to be, but he doesn't need to because he uses means. So 
Um, I just think, so I think that there's an underestimation of the sinfulness of man. I, I think that there is um, a, uh, a lack of rightly understanding the scriptures, which he would say about us on this particular issue. So that I don't mean that as some sort of like insult or anything. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully that those are helpful closing thoughts. I, some, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, Luke, you want to you want to uh, close us out here? Yeah, um, I, I have a couple thoughts come to mind. Um, first is um, when we discuss these issues, we need to be fair when we use language. And I think in this conversation, like in the video, um, Leighton commandeered, I'm not saying he's not being fair. He, I'm saying he commandeered a lot of the language, like what's normative or what's, what is the means? Well, when we're dis discussing what is normative in conversion or in God's interaction with us, it begs the question to say certain things are normative and some aren't. Because for from the Armenian perspective, the Holy Spirit's interaction with us is normative. Uh, it's part of the normal interaction with God that leads to conversion. So when he says normative, he means not the Holy Spirit. Uh, inter uh, um, doing any uh, influence on, on your your comprehension of what he's saying or uh, conviction of what uh, other than the word or the person in front of you uh, uh, that's what he means but it begs the question to say what's normative right we're saying what's how does God interact with us uh, what about the means well what is the means that God in communicates with us. That's the, uh, what's up for debate. So you can't start out saying the means are the Bible and a preacher. We're, we're, de we're debating. That's what's up for debate. So it's begging the question to, 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 to phrase it that way. And so we need to just, as when we discuss this with people, is to um, do a fair uh, discussion of what terminology means and not start out just handing it over and saying, okay, well, an additional means. Well, there's the means are the means. There's no additional means. Is, is the preacher additional means to the gospel? Uh, you know, and, and he might say yes. But the whole point is, is all of these are manifestations of light, of, of Christ interacting with us. And none of them, they're all coextensive, in, in my opinion. Um, and I just think that uh, the way we know the devil's will is the devil. Okay, what are the means that the devil uses? Well, uh, it's usually not the written word. I haven't read too much of the devil lately. But my point is, is that God's means are at least as extensive as the Satan's means. And uh, I don't know why we would want to compartmentalize that. Jesus is the light since the beginning. He was there and he was and he's continuing. We haven't we've left the garden, but we haven't. God, and we're still in the presence of God, uh, and he's trying to influence us in all the same ways he has, uh, none of them excluded, and none of them is All right. Well, very good. I uh, appreciate all of you guys taking this time to, uh, to hop on here and discuss these important issues, and, um, you know, I... I 
I, th I think uh, I guess I'll, I'll close it with just thanking you guys and also thanking Leighton. And I, I do think very highly of him. I appreciate his ministry. Um, it's just it, these are these are not just semantic differences. They're substantive differences. And I'm glad we had a chance to address them here at this point. Hopefully there'll be more. We'll see what happens. Maybe there's going to be something from Leighton's side that we're going to need to address at some point. Also, never... So no, <laughs> so, we shall see. Um but this has been a very helpful discussion and a blessing to me. Uh, so I appreciate uh, all you guys. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. And okay. God be with yeah. you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, Leighton, too. Yes. Yeah.